Hello and welcome to this podcast from Faber. My name is George Miller, and later in this programme, I'll be talking to Sarah Hall about some of the big themes she tackles in her new novel, How to Paint a Dead Man. I suppose the big questions of the novel are uh, sort of life and death and, and art and sex in between, uh, you know, how, how we live, how we die, and how we kind of celebrate and commemorate ourselves and make find a meaning in our lives through art in between. And My first guest today is Charles Foden whom I met recently to talk about his new novel, Turbulence. Giles is the author of the Whitbread-winning novel The Last King of Scotland, about Idi Amin and his Scottish doctor, which was later made into an Oscar-winning film. His new book is set in the tense build-up to D-Day. With modern forecasting still in its infancy, predicting what the weather would do assumed huge significance to the fates of tens of thousands of men and the course of the entire war. Giles brings a reader up close to the men engaged in these agonising debates in 1944. Men operating at the limits of scientific knowledge, with a military pressing them ever harder for a clear-cut answer. Would it be safe to disembark thousands of men on the Normandy beaches in three days' time? In doing so, he achieves something remarkable. He makes the business of weather forecasting nail-bitingly exciting. I asked him where the idea for turbulence came from. Like a lot of things in turbulence, the idea of writing about the D-Day weather forecast came to me, in fact, from my father-in-law, Julian Hunt, who's one of the world's sort of great meteorological scientists. In the course of his work, he was head of the Met Office, the British Met Office, in the uh, 80s. While he was involved in the uh, one of the D-Day commemoration ceremonies, he found a lot of material about the D-Day weather forecast that, once we spoke about it, we realised had not really percolated into the public sphere. So that's really why I, I sort of thought it would make a good subject for a novel. Something which the book brought home to me very clearly was it was enormously difficult to create a weather forecast with a, a horizon of even three days ahead in the 1940s. The D-Day weather forecasters were grappling with the limits of predictability. Eisenhower needed a probably a five-day lead time to launch the D-Day invasion. At that time it was probably really only scientifically possible to forecast about three days ahead. That's certainly what the British thought. The Americans forecasters thought otherwise. They thought that it was possible to forecast five days ahead. So you had these two camps within the forecast team and another element, a Norwegian forecaster and his assistant, who really dealt with trends, what we now know as weather fronts. Well, they knew them as weather fronts then. So you had these three different approaches, contradictory to a degree, and out of that came these two critical forecasts. One which put off the invasion that was originally planned for June the 5th, and the other which pretty much immediately put it on again. So you you had this question of scientists working right at the limit of knowledge, and that seemed to me a situation full of drama. One of the, the main springs of the plot is the existence of Wallace Ryman, who is a conscientious objector and also a highly gifted scientist, who may hold the key to unlocking the, the mysteries of, of weather forecasting. Now, he was based on a, a real character, but unlike some other characters in the book, you know, you changed names and you, you, you created a fictional character from some of the, the real-life data. Tell me about creating him. 
As with the interest in D-Day, the figure of Wallace Ryman in Turbulence came from my father-in-law. He's in fact based on uh, a scientist called Lewis Fry Richardson, the inventor, really, of modern weather forecasting. In the early 1900s and the 1920s, Richardson devised a system of numerical weather forecasting. That's to say, assigning numbers to the different physical quantities of weather and using equations to work out what's going to happen. Now, it seemed to me very strange that you had this brilliant, brilliant man there during the critical days of the Second World War, but he's holed up in Scotland, he's pretty much a recluse, and yet at the same time, down in uh, England, the D-Day weather forecast team are trying to grappling with these scientific issues that they don't entirely understand. And the one man, perhaps, who might be able to help them isn't there. So that's the other element in the story that I wanted to sort of connect up these two these two um, strands of narrative. And the way I did it was to send a young Met Office employee, a very gifted uh, a mathematician himself, up to Scotland to see Wallace Ryman, to see if he can winkle out his secrets for the use of the D-Day team. And that's the point at which fiction takes over. Henry Meadows is a, is a, a creation of your own imagination rather than being based on a, a real-life character. It's strange. This is a strange thing that can happen when you're writing the kind of novels that I write, that you create a fictional character and parachute him in to a real historical scenario. And then suddenly, as your research continues, you suddenly find the person that you've invented, find that he actually existed historically. So although they didn't send someone up to spy on Richardson slash Ryman in the way that happens in the novel, there was a character, a man called George Robinson, who was assistant to the leader of the D-Day weather forecasters, James Stagg. And I think probably he's the kind of real-life character that I was gesturing towards in, in my imagining of this figure. So, yes, I, he, he is invented, and the, the, that's the fictional element of the story, but it's very odd how you can suddenly find someone who existed, who seems to fit the template. And can I ask you what it is that particularly attracts you to, to fiction, which has quite close links and parallels with, with historical reality? I'm very interested in putting characters, pretty ordinary characters really, like, like Henry Meadows or Nicholas Garrigan. They might have a, some gifts, but generally they're pretty much like you and me. They're not really heroes, I would say. I like putting that kind of character into a situation where political or military or uh, other types of power are operating and seeing what happens. Because I, I feel that this is the situation we're, we're in, most of us, all the time. We're, we're just trying to get on with our ordinary daily lives in, our, in their localised sphere, and yet enormous great forces are working upon us all the time. And that's something I, I've always been interested in, in, in dramatising in, in my fiction. One thing which comes across very clearly from the book is that as often the case in wartime, it was a time of great scientific discovery and potential. And Henry Meadows is really the, 
the consciousness through which the reader experiences that. He, he is a young man, as you said, and he's, he's gifted, and he is sort of discovering these things and countering ideas. So, so it's a time of, of great excitement as well as time of international conflict. It's extraordinary how war does accelerate scientific development. In the case of uh, Henry Meadows and his, his finding out about uh, various aspects of turbulence, uh, both as a uh, sort of meteorological phenomenon and um, something that operates in many, many other areas of life, I was not just interested in the, in the mere facts of, of the narrative of scientific discovery, but also how all of us really are on a journey of knowledge. We're finding out uh, in the course of our daily lives, we're finding out about all sorts of things, but mostly we're finding out about ourselves. And for Henry Meadows, it's as much a journey into himself as it is a journey into the mysteries of turbulence. He's growing up, really, isn't he? He's becoming an adult. He's going from being a, a student and a, a young man to, to being an adult, I suppose. You could certainly say that Henry Meadows is, is growing up, but I also feel that perhaps we don't entirely grow up. We, we do tend to keep in the cycles established in childhood and early teens. That's the great challenge of, of human life, perhaps, is to master one's destiny in that, in that way. Probably it's what a lot of interesting novels are about, this process, I, I think a crit critics would call it, of individuation, of finding out exactly what it means to be a particular individual. I suppose he's he's got two potential models in the book. One is is first Ryman and then and then Pike, and they're kind of antithetical types of scientist. And he's kind of t I suppose sort of testing his own self against them, and then kind of growing beyond them. It seemed to me that was kind of the journey he was making. These two, one one a pacifist, one a kind of arm waving enthusiast for all kinds of technology that could participate in war. And he's kind of finding his own way, which is neither of those positions. Yes, Meadows is, is having to choose, really, between Geoffrey Pike, on the one hand, who's a real character, invented all sorts of extraordinary machines and techniques that were used during the Second World War uh, and indeed before and afterwards until he tragically died. But he's very keen to use science for any kind of military purpose. On the other hand, we've already talked about Wallace Ryman, based on Lewis Richardson, left the Met Office because he discovered that his equations to do with turbulence were being used by poison gas experts. So I suppose one's dealing there with issues that are still with us in terms of science. At what point should scientific research stop for some ethical reason? One of the things that I really enjoyed was this sense of build-up to D-Day. I was astonished by how successfully you could convey that by quite subtle means, because the, the foreground is the, the weather forecasters, but you get the sense of mobilisation on a, on a vast scale. Well, it was strange because you've got these uh, perhaps uh, six or seven uh, men, they were men, although there were many women in the, in the meteorological sort of backup teams, working in different locations, conversing bizarrely by telephone uh, in, in conference calls, trying to thrash out the weather forecast. There's a real sense of sort of a closed room, lots of weather charts on the table, really a lot of people swearing and scratching their heads. And then outside, this enormous great machine of war 
that's being wound up and is waiting to spring. A lot of it was about traffic. A lot of it was about enormous great numbers of military vehicles on the roads, either tanks and other vehicles, uh, lorries full of soldiers, and all, all the men and machines gathering in groups all over southern and central England. I think that they were actually called sausages, these areas of delimited land into which uh, men and machines were poured, ready for the, the word go. And what Meadows and the other forecasters are being asked to do is to kind of take the infinite complexity of the natural world and somehow reduce it to something which the human military mind can actually seize hold of and make something of. And that, that's, that's their predicament, really, isn't it? They're caught between the chaos or the, or the, the, and the, um, the mutability of the natural world and this, this war machine which needs a, a red light or a green light. Yes, on the, on the one hand, you've got the changeability of the atmosphere, where we can measure some things, but we're never, ever going to be able to measure all of it. There's so much happening on scales that we can't see or understand. And those measurements that we do take are an artificial mental construct that using systems like Lewis Richardson's, we produce our best guess at what the weather's going to do. It's always going to be a bit difficult. The longer the period of the forecast, the less accurate it's likely to be. It's a question of probabilities. On the other hand, you've got this great machine of war that has to get across the channel and establish a foothold. It has to happen on a particular day. Enormous organisation such as kind of organisation we, we don't seem to be able to do anymore. If you look at something like the Dome or uh, other, you know, God forbid the uh, Olympics in Britain, you get a real sense that somehow we're not so good at this anymore. So you've got these two things, as you said, the complexity of the atmosphere and also the practical necessity and also complexity of an invasion. And that's why these weather forecasters were under so much pressure, because it's always difficult to forecast something for a very particular day. We can see the trend or the pattern, but uh, especially if you've got a long lead time like that. And I, I really like the fact that there remained a question mark over the weather forecast. Although the landings went ahead, as we know, and were successful in a sense, there was still a question mark over how successful the forecasting had actually been. For years after D-Day, meteorologists, those who are involved, and indeed historians of meteorology, argued about was the forecast right or not. In a way, it's the wrong question. It's perhaps wrong to think was the forecast right or wrong in a binary opposition. It was more a question of percentages. It was right enough, just right enough. But as Churchill said, we took a very great risk with the weather. Many of the requirements that the military and all its branches had put upon the forecasters were not actually fulfilled. That's part of the reason so many people died in the assault, but it really was far fewer than it might have been by a long, long way. Meadows comes from an Anglo-Irish Catholic background, colonial childhood with, with tragedy in it, and I wondered how much stress you put on that as 
forming the character of the, the man that he becomes. Meadows has has a colonial African background, and I think that's certainly part of his makeup, part of the reason that he acts the way he does. I mean, this whole, the whole relationship of of this Second World War story with my own interest in in Africa, as explored in other books, is something that I puzzled over during the writing of Turbulence, and slowly. The two things came into an alignment through Meadows's tangled memories of, of his African childhood. The alignment was this, that really the only way that you are going to face up to or, or square up to the um, infinite complexity of the atmosphere and indeed this wider notion of the environment is not to colonise it, not to see it only with a human perspective. That's where the connection was really, that I, I became interested with this sense of, of the 19th century European experience in Africa, largely being, being one of uh, only seeing that continent through European spectacles, let's call it. And I think we're in danger now of uh, colonizing the natural world perhaps we've always done this in the same way whereas if we're to have a properly holistic experience of nature we mustn't uh, make the mistakes of our imperial forefathers you give meadows a nice phrase towards the end of the book he talks about a promiscuity of perspectives and that really i suppose is his epiphany he sees a way through that's neither one position or another, but taking things from all of them. And it seemed to me that was that was a, a useful way of thinking about scientific discovery, but it's also a useful way of thinking about what a novelist is trying to do in, a no in writing a novel. Yes, I think what Meadows discovers is that you have to look at things in a lot of different ways if you're going to get anywhere close to the complexity of, of experience and, and indeed the, uh, the physical world itself. And yet, uh, for a novelist, this is a problematic issue because uh, part of what we want when we read, I think, is, is some kind of singularity of perspective, some particularity. It's perhaps to do with that notion of individuation we spoke of earlier. So it's a tricky thing. It, was a hard, it's a, you know, it is what a, no a novelist does want, that sort of plenitude of view but you can't sacrifice the sense of an individual either. And trying to get a balance between those two things is something I'm very interested in exploring. It's something I probably will explore in a future book to a greater degree. But really, maybe all one's doing is reproducing what it's like to be in the world, that uh, we are alone, we see the world through our own eyes and yet we're also part of a we we're part of a some kind of community and some kind of wider communal experience of living that in, in which we sort of partake of the environment around us ra rather than just taking from it so so i guess writing and reading uh, are, are, are mimicking daily experience like that giles foden Turbulence is out now in hardback.
My second guest today is novelist Sarah Hall, author of three highly acclaimed previous novels, including the Booker shortlisted The Electric Michelangelo. Sarah lives in Cumbria, whose landscape has had a deep influence on her writing. Though her interest in place and landscape remains strong, when we met recently in London, she told me that finding the voices for the four main characters in her new novel, How to Paint a Dead Man, had been a key part of creating the texture of the book. Sarah weaves together the stories of an aged Italian artist and a young Italian girl stricken by blindness, and a successful English landscape painter and his bereaved daughter, herself a talented photographer. Art and its meanings and demands is clearly an important preoccupation running through the book. I began by asking Sarah if I was right in thinking that the work of Italian still-life painter Giorgio Morandi had been an important influence. Yes, you are right. I encountered his work first when I was an art history student and I think a friend of mine who's a painter first mentioned him to me. I loved the work. There was something very strange and serene and all the things that you, you hear people describe Mirandi's work in this way, that it, it is calm, it's tranquil, but it's sort of impenetrable in a way. You don't really understand and know immediately what the work means, if anything, and particularly with an art history degree, you're sort of trained to understand what something might mean in the still life genre. It's full of meaning and symbolism. But um, just aesthetically, I think the work is beautiful and then discovered a little bit more about the artist himself um, and he was a fairly strange character, was considered a, a bit of a hermit even though he wasn't really. But the uh, narrative, Giorgio's narrative in my novel um, is not biographical in any way of Mirandi. So while the work was definitely a starting point for me, absolutely the character differs. You know, the, the the work in a way is quite similar. Giorgio in my novel is a still-life artist who paints a series of bottles and other small domestic items, and he himself is something of an enigma, as is his work, but that's really where the similarities mm. end. Did you know that you wanted to write a novel with an Italian theme? How did that come about? Because I see, again, reading from the back of the book, that um, you spent some time in Italy, presumably researching this book. Yes, although I um, wrote a first draft of, uh, well, both uh, both the Italian narratives in the book were written before the residency in Italy, in, which was six weeks in Umbria, and that was the first time I'd been to Italy, so I had that thing of, I'd written an Italy of the imagination before experiencing the real place, and the residency, of course, gave me a great opportunity to get to grips a little bit more with the cultural history of the place and the physicality of the place and to see those great works of art firsthand that I'd studied for my art history degree. I suppose I'm particularly interested in landscape and trying to evoke place in my work so that trip to Italy was vital. One of the characters, one of the characters in the Italian, one of the na Italian narratives becomes blind in the course of the, the, the story which must have presented you with a challenge as a writer in order to evoke sensations without using the visual, which so many of the other characters in the book, um, that's their sort of main mode of, of interaction with the world. Yes, the character of Annette does go blind um, during the course of the story. So while she's experienced the visual world up to the age where she goes blind, which is the age of 11, then you know, you're, you're kind of um, having to rely on the other senses in the work to tell her story. Her story's written in the third person, which, you know, is a mechanism that does release you slightly. Uh, you're allowed to travel outside the kind of head of the character and, you know, the filter of, of, of the character. So you're able to kind of build the world, grow the world around her and 
describe it for the reader. I think were it to have been written in the first person, that would have been far more challenging. But yet interesting to sort of think about art while describing a character who can no longer see the world. The story has an erotic sexual component to it. There is Annette's story about her about her sort of sexual awakening. And you bring off the frescoes of an Italian church the figure of the, the bestia. Mm. Can you say something about how, how that took shape in your imagination and what, what that sort of embodies? Mm. Well, there are a couple of paintings that, um, and particularly of the deposition, the scene of the deposition, uh, which contain these terribly strange and frightening faces. And so again, kind of I'm borrowing from art history. So Annette is being, she's blind, she feels a presence close by, Uh, she feels she's being followed around and made uncomfortable by this terrible creature, the bestia, who has kind of released himself from the painting and the altarpiece of her local church, and there is a sense of, there's a sort of sinister sexual quality to this. Her family have decided to arrest her development since the blindness to try and keep her safe from the world. And so, you know, her mother, who's quite a sombre woman and bereaved, lost her husband, tries to sort of lock Annette up, really, in, in, a, in a world of innocence. But Annette herself is questioning of the world and interested in the world and feels herself to be awakening. And so there is this kind of darkness, you know, this dark character, dark sexual character um, that she's curious about and also afraid of. And... Uh, you know, towards the end of her story, becomes she becomes more acquainted with this <laughs> character. So I suppose it's a, in a way, a, a symbol not only of the beast and of death, but also of a kind of the sort of dark sexual unknown of, for a young girl. Juxtaposed with that view of sexuality, though, is the view of sexuality as something which is restorative and constructive, and it's a, mm. it's a way of recovering the lost identity that Susan's been been searching for. And there's there's this sort of duality really in the book in the way that sexuality is presented yes and susan begins to sort of redefine herself through this very sexual relationship that she's engaging in and i suppose it's restorative in a way it's um i mean it's problematic it's it's an affair and so it constitutes um a problem in her life but she feels herself to be more human when she's you know engaging in these acts and uh, at least it's a kind of um, way of feeling physically in the world and that she exists and I suppose the big questions of the novel are uh, sort of life and death and, and art and sex in between uh, you know how, how we live how we die and how we kind of celebrate and commemorate ourselves and make find meaning in our lives through art in between and so Susan, who's kind of come up against death and the kind of death of her brother, sort of begin, does she does begin to find herself again through this sexual relationship and um, life comes kind of flooding back to her in a very kind of sensual way, even as she's kind of struggling through through this period of bereavement. So I do think there's, there's sort of the sex in the novel is complicated, not romantic, and kind of goes to all the difficult areas that that we that we have in our lives anyway. Many of the characters in the book are artists. Susan is a photographer. Her father, Peter, is a famous landscape painter. As we've said, Giorgio is a, a still life artist. And that gives you an opportunity really to explore the the practice and the, the meaning and um, the, the, the whole life of, of the artist from lots and lots of different angles. Yes, yeah. In a way, there's a division in in the novel of artist and human or, or 
practitioner, producer of the art. And I suppose it goes to this idea of examining identity again. The artists in the book are not necessarily comfortable with their kind of artistic persona. And we are very fascinated, aren't we now, with the sort of practitioners and and how they represent work their own work and that they might be the key to unlocking the mystery of the work we're fascinated by artists and writers and it to the to the point of celebrity so the novel sort of sees the artists trying to sort of reconcile themselves with the work that they've produced with the idea that the world has perhaps about their work and it's not a terribly comfortable process for any of them susan in particular her her father is peter who's the landscape artist very well known she's a fairly well-known photographer so she's i suppose feels slightly inferior to him and isn't working anyway because she's not in a very good place i mean Giorgio at one point says or at least writes in his journals that it's a it's a house of immortal fathers in which i work and as well as the sort of personal relationships there is this idea perhaps of you know these grand male artists that form the the uh, the kind of canon if you like of um big personalities uh, purveyors of great artistic ideas and that there are kind of useful women in the novel who are sort of taught by these great great old artists so there is that tension between the old male world of art and a kind of new female world of art but again it's it's all mixed in there with the personal dissolution of Susan and Annette's sight you know Annette's still kind of painting pictures in her head she's been taught by Giorgio in school and interested in the still life genre but loses her sight and the only thing she can do is kind of use the mind's eye to to continue to paint her pictures. Giorgio is at the end of his life and he's got this constant stream of journalists coming up to his house asking him questions, trying to make sense of it and and he's stuck to his guns throughout his career. He's, he's you know, he's rather to, to, to switch metaphors, he's ploughed his furrow mm. and he's got a great emphasis on being a practitioner and being skilled and mastering the art of shadows and perspective and all those things in, in quite an old-fashioned way and he's, he hasn't been deflected from that but in his background there is some some contact with the fascist regime mm. which kind of has tarnished his past. Can you say something about about that? Because I wondered I wondered if in a way you were suggesting that maybe he had sort of opted out by being a still life artist, he'd kind of opted out of of true sort of political engagement through his art. It was a way of not confronting some of his own demons from the past. Yeah, I think there is an idea in Giorgio's narrative that something of his work is being produced because there is a residue of not shame exactly, but certainly there's the idea that he was perhaps involved with the fascist movement early on, which was not an uncommon thing in Italy. I mean, the movement didn't arrive fully formed, it became something else, and perhaps that there was a kind of Nazi involvement later on complicates things further. But um, Italy is a very complicated place with a very complicated political history. And yes, there is a sense, although I don't, it's never really unraveled in the novel, the meaning of his past. And he has also lost a wife who was taken away to the camps. So we're never really quite sure what of his work, what of it is responding to his past and to Italy's past. And I did want to keep that fairly opaque because it's, again, uh, this idea of interpretation of interpretation of art, really. it's it's uh, There are no black and white interpretations, you know, great art, complicated art. Uh, it, it's not singular, it's it's something that hosts many interpretations and so nobody ever quite cracks the novel, the, the, the kind of 
the novel's enigma, which is why Giorgio painting these bottles over and over again. Why won't he just say what he's doing? Why won't he confirm people's theories about the work, whether it is fascist, existentialist, whatever it is? And I, I, I was interested in that. I was interested in the idea that um, the work lives on past the kind of persona, past the celebrity, past the artist. And uh, Mirandi's work too, you know, it's strange work that nobody fully understands. It's, but I love the idea that we're still talking about it now and actually we're still talking about his work mm. rather than him. Oh. We're not talking, he, he didn't cut off an ear. He doesn't have the kind of great personality, great intrigue in his life. The intrigue lies in his work. And for me, that's a, that's a, I'm speaking of Mirandi again now. For me, that's a triumph somehow. The idea that we, we're talking about his work rather than him today. Tell me about the, the language of the novel, because I was really impressed by that. And it's got a it's got a real sort of poetic density to it. And by that, I don't mean it's had sort of lyrical flights of fancy, but it's, the, thing, the, the words have real, got real sort of weight to them. And even if you're describing the, the innards of a pigeon, you describe the innards of a dead pigeon as plush innards. And I, I, I just wondered how you, how you, I mean, do you see the world, does the world sort of come to you in those terms in your imagination? Or do you have to work very hard to craft those those sort of perceptions into the prose that, that finds its way into the novel? Possibly a little bit of both. I think uh, an image, particularly the images, may arrive half-formed or have a sense of something and I'll try and kind of sketch it. And then in the editing stages, we'll go back and really try and refine the image, cut those words out that are unnecessary, try and pick a more accurate word. Sometimes accurate, not necessarily in a visual way, but... Um, in, in an evocative way, I suppose. What <laughs> you mentioned entrails. How, what what would be a what would be a word that would conjure up the kind of plumpness and the redness and the so plush like upholstery, like red velvet or something. I don't know. I suppose I'm thinking in terms of what's really going to kind of bring it to life somehow or, or make it. It is about evocation, I suppose. At the end of the day, it's it's an again not just visual but something that goes to all the senses. So I think there's a. I think there's a sort of spirit of language which arrives in those early drafts and one of the challenges is to keep that alive during the editing process. Giorgio's narrative arrived, his voice arrived in my head and it was clean and simple and strange and had its own sort of rhythm and uh, and that, that was an odd thing particularly as it was written after Electric Michelangelo which was wordier and more ornate. And so I sort of surprised myself by drawing down this clean, clean voice and set it all down on the page. And in the editing, I sort of broke the spirit of the voice, really. I, I, I tried to sort of straighten it out too much and or add an authority to it, thinking, OK, well, this is a 79 year old and what does it need? It needs more wisdom in the voice or something. And I was overthinking it, over intellectualising it, maybe. And I think just broke the narrative and had to go back to those early drafts and recapture the sort of mellifluous speech or or the, the you know that that sort of had a ring to it that was like it was sort of like crystal you know like flicking crystal and it and it rang and it was quite clear and I had to go back and sort of listen listen to what was going on in the early drafts again and then treat it gently and trust that enough of the character was there and yes he was 79 and you know it was all fine but uh recapture something of that, that early freshness. Sarah Hall. How to Paint a Dead Man is out now in paperback. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast from Faber. If you have, you'll find plenty of other author interviews on the Faber website at faber.co.uk. You can also subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. It's free, quick and easy. 
just type Faber in the search box on iTunes podcast page. I hope you can join me again next month for another Faber podcast, and look out for a special podcast featuring an in-depth interview with P.D. James in the meanwhile. Until next time, thank you for listening, and goodbye.